Welcome to Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during this period of COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, Zooming and live streaming with you here from Dorchester, Massachusetts, now a full three months into our shelter in place. As I speak to you here from the south side of Boston, we are also entering a third week of unprecedented uprisings and mass protests across the United States, catalyzed and brought forth most immediately by the brutal police murder of George Floyd, but in fact, uh, tapping into a long history of racial oppression and systemic racism and police violence across this country, which has been emerging and upsurging in a really astonishing ways. Hundreds and hundreds of towns and cities across the United States and across the world have seen mass protests, rebellions, some decried as riots. We've seen police driven from police stations. We've seen city councils pledging to defund and dismantle police departments. We're really in a remarkable whirlwind moment. And we are pleased to have you here today on Shelter and Solidarity number 10, our 10th episode of Shelter and Solidarity. Our theme today is Poets of the Rebellion. And though we continue today to engage the discussion from last week, what these rebellions mean, what are the injustices that are being opposed, the oppression that's being given voice to, the struggle in the streets, today we approach those questions from a different angle, from the perspective of poetry, from the perspective of those who, among other tools and weapons, may wield the written and the spoken word as a way to connect the personal to the political, as a way to shed light on the past, the present, and the possible future. We are blessed today to have a group of poets from around the country, from New York to North Carolina and beyond, joining us via Zoom for live readings of their own poetic reflections, their own poetic works, as well as a discussion of this unprecedented moment and what it means and how it appears from the standpoint of artistic production, of cultural production, of poetry and literature, right? Uh, what does poetry have to contribute to a moment of COVID pandemic, a moment of massive countrywide and worldwide rebellion, right? What is the particular role that poets and poetry are playing and can play and strive to play in this historical moment we're in? I'm so thrilled to hear the, the, the readings we'll have later, as well as the discussion that we'll have with our, with our great guests. Uh, our co-host and our lead host for today will actually be Tim Sheard, uh, my co-producer of this show, Shelter and Solidarity. Uh, zooming with us from Brooklyn. Tim, are you there? I'm here. Thank you, Joe. It's great to have you back on camera, Tim. You're doing so much behind the camera, but you've done so much to organize this show, particularly working through, as I understand it, the National Writers Union, uh, among other networks you have to really assemble a great group of poets with us today. Um, I'd like to actually pitch it to you, uh, Tim, and, and maybe just you can help us to introduce the, some of the great, talented writers and, and speakers we have today. And, uh, and take, take it, I'll, I'll check back later once we've heard some poetry. Take it away, Tim. Yeah, thank you so much, Joe, thank you. Uh, we are very, uh, very lucky and, and, uh, tonight to have the support of the Harlem Writers Guild, which is a, a long-established uh, 
association of writers in many genres, and they've been happy to help us, along with the National Writers Union, uh, to find us poets. And we thought, in, in our shows, we often have uh, academics, um, journalists, activists in the field, responding to events, and we wanted to hear from the poets in us, and how you're responding, how you're responding to these events, and how it's affecting your art. So we're really delighted, delighted to have you here tonight. We're gonna to go alphabetical, and we're gonna ask each of you to read one uh, poem or two very, very short poems. Uh, and then we're gonna open up some topics uh, to discuss, and we'll hear your points of view and hear what's going on with your life and with your career. So we're gonna start with Judy. Judy Andrews, you wanna un unmute your mic? You gotta click that unmute. There you go. Oh. And one of our Can wonderful, yes, one of our okay. wonderful Harlem writers, poets. So take it away, Judy. Uh, thank you. I'm gonna be reading from my recently published um, Kindle book, The Gathering of Gemstones. It's on Kindle, but I, so, I will soon have it out on, um, hopefully it's not upside down. I'll soon have it out in the fall sometime. I wrote a poem, uh, Reflecting, it's called The Gathering of Gemstones, a poetry collection. I wrote a poem a few years, well, a few years ago, but I recently published it last month called Cargo. I was reflecting on the African-American experience um, from the time we arrived here until the time of present day. The name of the poem is Cargo. No other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., 1929-1968. No other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. What thoughts are conjured in a human mind to steal culture, precious riches, kidnap, traffic, breed another human being store inside a ship as a shipment, as cargo, goods, property, trade, to be inspected. Hands all over mouths, sacred breasts, genitals, wombs that cover a heart in pain, hands traveling into soft sections that are private, circling around forbidden places, brown bodies invaded, bartered, prodded, whipped as three-fifths a human, like an animal, from continent to continent for 400 years, creating new nations, a workforce, an economy for profit? What thoughts are conjured in a human mind to beat religion, doctrine, beliefs, into a stolen brown body for profit. What thoughts are conjured in a human mind to rip a stolen brown body from his or her family's arms and not allow either one to read, write, beg, weep, learn for profit? What thoughts are conjured in a human mind to slap curse, insult, humiliate, torture, spit, maim, scar, wound, tie up to a tree, hang, torch, 
stab, cut, run, run over, kneel on, step on, tar and feather, at a party, picnic, in a forest, barren, barren land, watch, laugh, curse, insult, clap, joke, burn, bury alive, invite children to a picnic, party, to watch, eating, movie, theater, popcorn, stomp, separate, limbs, using an animal or vehicle, divide, conquer, using hateful words, deeds, confusion, by complexion, hair texture, eye color, shameful, shameful shelter, home, poverty, class, starvation, injustice, inequality. Our children do it now to each other. They stomp hatred into the faces of their brothers and sisters on street corners owned by gangs, engulfed in crack, cocaine, heroin, fentanyl, oxycodone, merperidine, trafficking, stolen brown bodies, kidnapped in America, murdered for profit. Ignorant thoughts are conjured in a human mind today to say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Forget about slavery. That happened a long time ago, that crap. Stop being so lazy. 400 years of history is now a part of technology for the human mind to profit. Thank you. Thank you, Judy. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. Thank you so much for reading. And we'll get a chance to talk a little bit more about how poetry can touch people's hearts and open their minds and maybe take away the veil of some of their own uh, indifference or their own illusions. Thank you so much. Let's go on to uh, Mohammed Kamara. Are you there, Mohammed? Yes, I am. And you're unmuted. Okay. Uh, take it away. Um, yes, Mohammed Kamara here. Um, this poem is intentionally everything that it is. Um, I'm still making sense of the world around me. Um, it takes place on the Grand Concourse, that's on, in the Bronx, and it's from a perspective of perspectives of uh, an elder black, uh, that's a male or female, uh, who, you know, vulner once vulnerable to the police, is not fearful of COVID. Here we go. <laughs> There is a pigeon that frequents my window pane. It paid me a visit this morning to relate the news of the world beyond the walls of my room. It hummed to me in pity, watching me through the glass as I sat in my solitude, alone in my loneliness. I felt a rage in my cage. I wanted to be free, if not alone. I gestured at the bird to leave. It flew away in tears. I sat in my disquietude with a pen and a book of poetry to write an incantation to grow wings. For I too had a plan before survival became the plan. I wanted to see Japan with a friend or Rome, pretentiously standing before ancient ruins like tourists do abroad. But most of my days nowadays are spent before my window pane on the grand concourse, looking onto the streets, onto the dental clinic surrounded by black youth 
of all hues, singing blues as eulogies for the siblings who wouldn't die in vain. In the summer's past, I watched a little blue building shade the fruit vendor in the minivan, parked on the side of the road, welcoming the endless traffic of daytime travelers. There, folks in foldable chairs play dominoes and sip on cold bottles of Corona as they sway to the music of the Dominican Islands. Children, little black boys and little black girls ran after freedom around and around the fire hydrant as the water gushed to nourish the neighborhood. Young men smoked reefers on the stairwell and chirped politics in the barbershops in the hopes of finding new beginnings to old stories. Beneath them in the D train, working families sat, in the, sat with umbrellas, blue, green, red in color, heading for Coney Island where good time used to be captured on memory cards. I look onto those plants now, those days of yesterday, behind me in the back of my mind. But my imagination stops to, to heed the call of COVID and the, and the cry of Floyd, our unwelcomed guest. Then I find myself longing for noise, longing for life again. Why is everyone hanging online? I think about going for a walk to clear my mind. I think about fresh air. I think about people, agents incognito, waiting to inject me with the virus. I hate the sight of the sun. It reminds me of death. I'm afraid for my life. I've washed my hands dried. My skin is brittle. It cracks. COVID is silent and it's violent. It lurks where apples and roses once bloomed in inner city projects where cardboard boxes and contain names of teens who died to see 2020. Floyd, may you rest in peace, for you too did not keep a diary. I feel the shadows of your voice in my fear of COVID, in my fear of the police. What happened to the music on the block? I can't bear the silence. Schools or clothes get to inside. The games have stopped. Why am I online? Someone cut the line. I need air. Someone cut the line. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Get off my fucking back. I can't breathe. Thank you, Mohammed. Thank you so much. Powerful stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Poet, poet from the Bronx. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> all right. We're allowed, to, we could, we're allowed to applaud, right? We that's right. I wish we could do this all night. You know? readings. So I wish we could do know, this. I'm going to be cold here. We, that's we, right. We, it's a new territory. That's uh, right. Thank I, you. Thank you, Mohammed and, and Judy. Yeah, I wish we could do this for hours and hours. It's such good stuff. Uh, we're going to ask for Lorraine Corelli now. Lorraine is a poet laureate of the Bronx, a member of the Harlem Writers Guild, and a, a, a mentor to many uh, younger poets. Uh, wonderful lady. She's going to be reading two short poems for us. So take it away, Lorraine. Oh, and you have to unmute your mic. Don't forget to unmute your mic so you'll be able to you'll be able to speak. She's on the phone. Do we need to unmute her? Seren, can you unmute from your end? Maybe we can. Okay. Did there I? There you go. Can you hear me? We got You're you. You're good. Go ahead, Lorraine. Okay. This is entitled uh, Descendant. Growing up, 
Mama's Fried Fish, Grits, 5 a.m. Southern Biscuits, and Love were safety and home. Then something happened at around age seven. They started to visit. I heard voices and saw visions, visitations from spirits of the dead. As far back as I can remember, people used to always point and say, she's not here with us. There's something special about that child, not in a crazy certifiable way. Some called me an old soul, I preferring the company of the elders. In their presence, I experienced kinship and great longing for other worlds I have long been absent from. During these visits, my soul would open up and I would cry out to them. There are times I feel myself drowning and must lean on my God, beloved sisters in inner strength to will myself to live. They listen always refusing to take me with them. It's not your time, they would say when I pleaded to come with them. Time has passed and my hair has grown white with prayer. I have spent my years piecing together a life, hungrily seeking to rediscover all that has been stolen, hidden and lost, my body and spirit at times weary. I understand, know the madness of others who talk to themselves. Daily, we search for signs of kin in the faces and speech of those wearing our skin, always acknowledging, never damning their whispers. Theirs are the whispers of those who know and do not know, buried beneath foreign shackles. Here she comes, they whisper. She wears white to purify and purple to celebrate the sacred. Some call her a holy woman, living with spirits of those long gone. All is not sadness and longing. There are times I find great joy and revelation when I have met myself. My heart starts to beat rapidly, my head spins, and sometimes I feel as though I am finally breathing. It is here lives ancient home, smells of ocean and recovered blessed memory. Colors and sounds of the unforgotten laugh through me. Then there are times when my blood is restless and I am unable to own peaceful sleep, witnessing this ancestral voices call out to me. We are here, take hold, live in us. We are how you will save your life. I grasp for what has become mother's milk. I suck in color, drum, dance, and bone. My age, that of ancient warriors and, my, and sky, my breast pyramids, my birth canal, the Nile, voices rumbling in my head demanding, I tell all. With each telling my voice becoming their rebirth, promises of hope, and freedom. Beloved, do not bury your life. Eat yourself daily, sucking the marrow from your bones. Your liberation, power, and life have never lived, and do not live in your oppressors, blind laws, and raped treaties. Do not love nor listen to those who hold your death. 
until you embrace loving self, you will never know home and continue to live without your head. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lorraine. That was lovely, the powerful stuff. Thank you so much. And uh, poets should know that we're recording this program and it will be available later in the week as a, as a streaming. People will be able to watch it and listen to it, uh, other people, you know, uh, down the road. Just jumping okay. in quick, Tim, Tim, I'm also gonna offer a few thoughts, like some thoughts and reflections on everybody's work once we've heard through and we'll welcome other folks to do the same. I, I thought that it was possible Lorraine had a second poem, I think, did she mention that before? A second short poem, and Lorraine, is that correct? If, I, if not, that's fine too, we can keep moving on, yeah. but we can certainly cycle back. We'll, okay. we'll cycle back, yeah, we'll cycle back. Okay, so we are now, Extremely lucky to have um, a poet activist here, Demetrius Noble, who's going to um, uh, share a poem with us. Demetrius, take it away. Ah. Hey, Demetrius, you got to unmute yourself, brother. Unmute, Demetrius. We can't hear you. Can you hear me now? We can. All right, let's take All right, it from the top. All right. Good. Thank you. Thank you for catching up. Uh, this piece is entitled Poverty Policing Pandemic, a Black Lives Matter Grounding Exercise. Inhale. Smell that righteous rage permeating from police precincts propaned with protests. I know we're in the middle of a pandemic, but I need you to pull your face mask down and smell the swell of 100,000 yells. No justice, no peace. You can literally smell the fire of our legitimate political desires whenever wind blows. You tried to hide inside, but the revolutionary aroma rolled in through busted windows. They found some rich rapping Negroes to denigrate the dark denizens who dared to remind Atlanta's black mayor that they too are citizens and are tired of living in poverty in a city that leads the nation in income inequality with Black Lives Matter on their minds and the radical inflection point within reach. These outcasts hit the streets and told Mayor Bottoms, fuck your new Atlanta compromise speech. Inhale. Can you smell the fear of orange monsters cringing in bunkers? See the actions of neo-fascists dispatching troops on unruly youngsters? Till gassing our children because they had the audacity to believe that another world is possible and won't stop until it's achieved. Smell the winds of change riding in on this new breeze. Not even your offensive line can block freedom's fragrance, Drew Brees. See established budgets crumbling from our rumblings as we demand defund the police. See charges being filed as brilliant red fires glow. 
Hear the chant, Black Lives Matter as global protests grow. Hear essential workers on a picket line scream, no, we won't go. Feel this mighty movement from below. Witness that this powder keg is about to blow. Take off your face mask. Open your mouth and belt suppressed screams. Inhale and smell the cities on fire till you taste the kerosene. Say their names until you taste our pain. Then join us on the front lines as we struggle for change. Don't let these embers cool, youngin. Feed the flames. Um, thank you so much, Amicius. Wow. Go Detroit. Wow. Thank you so much. We get a Demetrius has a video of that too, set to live footage, which maybe we can put up in the chat box. He shared with us a couple days ago. It would be great to send and circulate that to, to folks on and off this call. Thanks, D. Yeah, yeah, that'll be great. Maybe we'll go for two hours tonight. We'll see, huh? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mark Polite, we have you up next. Uh, you want to un be sure and unmute, unmute your uh, your 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 uh, your mic, and you are next on deck. Okay. All right. Evening. Okay. So I'm going to read a poem from my second book, Portic Ruminations, Volume 2, and it's available on Amazon. This piece is titled, Let Me Tell You About My People. Let me tell you about my people. My people face all kind of evil. Resilient. We win when we aren't supposed to and deserve a medal of honor for all the nonsense we go through. Even when we're hated, we don't return in kind. We find hope in the dimmest of places. Never long coward in fear. We pass down our lessons to the next generations. Building on the real living, inspiring, because being black and American means courage under fire, because the shots never stop. No ceasefire, the peace has expired. Under the gun, even if we don't got one. But my people, we still keep on, whether down south or up south, quiet or slick mouth, we enrich this place, even as we face derision and hate. Whether South Carolina or the South Bronx, our culture is studied and knocked off, appropriated but not appreciated. Let it all seep into your skin. Even though we're set up to lose, we still pull out the win. My people, thank you. All right. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. All right. Okay, we um, we have coming up next Raymond Nat Turner, all the way from Los Angeles. Uh, he's going to be reading to us his poem, one of his poems, and um, we're delighted to have him all the way from the West Coast. And we hope he gets back to New York one day soon. Take it away, Raymond. Okay. Um, the truth of the matter is, is um, I'm in Oakland, California. I'm from LA originally, but in Oakland. But anyway, this piece is called Essential 
work. We'll always need race car drivers roaring down streets where children chase balls. Like we'll always need peaceful protesters pepper sprayed like cockroaches. And we'll always need sleeping seven-year-olds shot while dreaming of dolls, sleepovers, tooth fairies. We'll always need children playing with toy guns in parks, executed before becoming Hulk Hogan's. We'll always need doors kicked in and our daughters and sons slaughtered in wee hours, even if it is the wrong address. We'll always need elderly parents whacked for accidentally pressing emergency alerts. Like we'll always need mentally ill loved ones massacred in their homes. We'll always need men rushing pregnant wives to hospitals shot for speeding and fathers of six hustling too hard, chokehold lynch. We'll always need young women who drive and smoke, stopped and suicided, and mothers wearing masks wrong, wrestled down in subway stations as their four-year-olds watch. We'll always need wallets mistaken for guns, glocks for tasers, fleeing black men shot in their backs, and bridegrooms butchered night before their weddings. We'll always need tasered hearts skanking in reggae rhythms and broken broomsticks rammed up men's rectums for fun. We'll always need bruised, bloody, disfigured faces, eyeballs dangling from sockets. We'll always need drugs and guns planted, growing into cases, concertina wire, COVID-19. We'll always need right hooves raised, testiline to judges and juries of peers on the need for knees on necks. 56 licks or 41 shots served to protect property. Thank you so much, Raymond. Thank you. Thank you. Powerful words. Thank you. Wow. I think we maybe saved our best for last. We have Eartha Watts Hicks. Are you that you want to unmute your mic there, Eartha? Are you? Uh, are you? Are you? Can you hear me, Eartha? There you go. You want to? Un there you go. Okay. Uh, so another Harlem Writers Guild poet, Eartha Watts Hicks. Thank you. Uh, I have two short pieces. Uh, Tammy, if you could raise a hand if my sound is a little funny because my internet connection is a little iffy. So just raise your hand if I, if I go out. 
This one's called We Share Our World for a Reason. And it's from my uh, collection of poetry, short stories, and personal essays called Graffiti Mural. We should all be proud of who we are, where we're from, and respect everyone's right to be just as proud. We could all love ourselves enough and appreciate differences. Differences in background, class, culture. We would all understand being pro-me does not require anyone to be anti-you or live with us against them divisiveness. But for the stubborn and pig-headed few, fools to refuse to see shifts in society, radical divides melding indistinguishably thanks to biological, extended, spiritual family in a continuum. Someday, minority and majority will not be defined by race, but redefined by attitude and understanding. Hate anywhere hurts everyone. And the next one is called, um, I Woke Up Black. I woke up black. I went to sleep black. I think black. But that does not mean I think dark thoughts. I smell black, so I know black is sweet. I speak black, so I know black is eloquent. My heart is black, so I know black is kind. My compassion is black, so I know black can be selfless. My drive is black, so I know black is the purest form of determination can't shut me down. They might try to stand in my way, but they cannot turn me back. My power is inextinguishable. I am black. I love black. I love me. You might ask, how did I get so black, so fine, so eloquent, so kind, so powerfully sweet? I woke up this way every day since the day is born, and black is all right with me. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you. That was wonderful. Is, is that last poem, is that published in any, any of your books yet? Sorry, the last one is, in my, is from my upcoming book called Graffiti Mural 2. Okay, all right, because that's a great title, too, that I woke up black. That's a great title. Thank, Thank you. you, Arthur. That is just fantastic. Okay, so we've heard from our poets. So, Joe, I think you want to make some comments? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to, uh, I know that we're going to have a chance to, to put some questions to the, to the guest readers uh, in a moment. Tim, you're going to lead that. But I want to thank everybody for, for sharing your words and, and your voices. And I just had, a, I mean, a couple of, I mean, there's so much to say. Like, every text that we heard is very rich in different ways. So, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, and I'm, and I'm an academic literature professor. So, you know, I'm going to, I like, I could be thinking about this for days, but I don't want to talk for days. So, because I think one thing that, that struck me about all of them is that there was a, a lot captured in a very short period of time, right? A, a lot concentrated in a very concrete and vivid way. Um, and just to start, pick somewhere to start, I mean, uh, Raymond, so glad to have you back with us today. Raymond did actually spring a poem on us a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago in a previous episode. Uh, there's already been a request for that poem in the chat box, but, but Raymond, listening to you, I mean, I was struck by how 
you concentrated, I don't know, maybe the events of at least a dozen actual episodes, right? I mean, as well as perhaps archetypes of episodes faced by, by people across this country, right? And the different ways in which death has been death and torture and, and, and indignity has been brought to people. But you do it in so few words in such a crystal image, you know what I mean? Image by image by image, just the kind of accretion of history and even recent contemporary events, right? The, the headlines of, of years kind of put into just, you know, a, a dozen lines. And it just, I mean, I literally got chills listening to your work, not only I think because of the way you chronicled so vividly these like actual events, whether or not uh, making me wonder if you literally work from the headlines sometimes nonetheless. But also I think what moved me so much about the way that you uh, presented that work was the framing that you offered, right? With this repetition of the notion, we'll always need, which of course raises fundamentally the question of who is the we that has this kind of a perverse, anti-human need, right? And also really throwing into a powerful relief, you know, a powerful irony, this notion of always, what will always be with us, right? This kind of sense of fatalism in a world that can't be changed and a sense that capitalism or racism or the police or the CIA are just like forces of nature that nothing could ever be done about. And I just, I mean, I don't mean to ramble, but I was particularly struck by the the powerful, that powerful poem, uh, which, you know, I hope I can read as well as hear. And I just, it just seemed all of the poets, I thought, really conjured so much, not only feeling, but reflection in so few words, which I think is one of the things poetry can really do, right, is to kind of concentrate in an image and in a line the complex realities that might really take us pages and pages to explain. And so that, I mean, that one hit me big time and, and really all of you did not maybe I'll rather than give a lecture right now or a reflection back on what you said, I'll just leave it there and just, uh, and, and let Tim take, uh, Tim take the, the first, you know, lay out some questions. And cause I really, I guess what I wanted to hear after hearing every one of you, I'm very interested as to, um, you know, what your process is, how you conceive of the work you're doing past, present, and future in terms of how it does intersect this history. Some of you read poems that really engaged explicitly history, you know, in that 400 and 500 year sense, right? Raising that question of what is the connection between then and now, right? Others raised questions about that relationship between hardship and hate and, and violence and hope and love. This question of how can one conjure something other and better from a kind of history that has so much hardship and and indignity and and violence, and so I'm really just interested to hear, uh, you know, how each of you, you know, I'm going to let Tim take the lead on this, but how he kind of conceives of of the work that you're doing. I mean, oftentimes artists aren't doing aren't always even conscious of what they're doing. You just do it. But I wonder if we can use some of this space today to tease out without without uh, killing the beauty of the art form to tease out some of the critical reflections about how you imagine and understand. Uh, the relationship between that struggle out in the street and that writing that happens on the other side of the window inside to, to, to poach a line from our first reader, uh, Mohammed as well, that, that relationship between being inside the windows, looking out, and how, how what's happening outside that window, assuming that window isn't broken as Demetrius figured it, right? 
the way the outside penetrates the inside, right? And how, and what that process, you know, and what that, you know, what that looks like and, and how, you, how you describe that process and, and really how this particular moment we're in right now has resonated with your existing process too. So anyway, I got my questions. Tim's got his. I think they overlap a little bit. And I just really look forward to hearing y'all talk a little bit about your work too because it was definitely very moving for me to hear. And I'll just stop there. All right. Thank you, Joe. So we'd like, I'd like to hear from uh, each of you um, about your, what, how you see your role as an artist at this historical moment. What can you as a poet and as an activist, as an artist and an activist, what can you do to help make this a better world, to, 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 to fight against the racism and the oppression and the inequality and the, and the ignorance this administration what can you as an artist and as a poet how do you see your role in, in what what do you see your role is uh, at this moment in, fi in fighting the good fight um, so we started out alphabetical I mean if you have a thought maybe if you could um, maybe raise a hand or something and I'll call on you or if someone wants to start out as the artist activist Judy go ahead as an activist at first because all I wanted to do was write murder mysteries and um, <laughs> and suspense and that was fun for me but I had been writing poetry when I was in college but I was too embarrassed to show it um, my process was to my process now is to write from my experiences and from what I observe uh, how can I make a difference without being um, with by being um, reflective as well as tactful um, I think as an artist, you can do whatever you want to do as an artist, but I think that the most, the, the people who listen to you the most will respect the way that you um, speak to them. The way you speak to the reader um, will give the reader an opportunity to, to make change or social change. And it usually starts with writing. Uh, writing people don't realize that writing can be protest and, and revolutionary, as well as um, you know, standing in the street and protesting. You know. So I think education is the most important. All right, All right. thank you, thank you so much. I, I, I agree, you can open people's eyes in a way that facts, statistics can't do it. You know, but the image that you conjure up, as Joe was saying, the image that you can conjure up, the powerful image you can conjure up can really shake people out of their doldrums and out of their out of their indifference. Really, hopefully, well, what, Mohammed, what do you think? Uh, can you can you change people's hearts and minds uh, with your poetry? Uh, it's it's really interesting because when you at least when I start writing a poem, I have an idea in my mind, um, but the pen ultimately um, I end up with what the pen wants me to write uh, almost. And sometimes you can fight that, and um, you end up with something that you don't really like. Uh, because you've gone against sort of this natural thing. I think poetry over the centuries, right, or millennium that has been around um, has this human thing to it, this emotion that, as you said, can be found in statistics, right? So you can say, well, there are people right now that are saying, um, you know, black on black crime is a worse crime than, um, you know, police violence, right? Um, or that, you know, police killing black people is a less, is a less thing. But if, as we've done tonight, right, I didn't, emotions to that killing, right? And tracing that killing back to the 400 years of history, that has perspective and depth to it. And hence we can see it from a different perspective, a perspective that is more informed and can add um, 
to sort of the way we see the world around us. And I think it takes that. Numbers don't really change mind. It takes people to change people's mind. And that is done through emotions um, and relating to people's, um, the, the better element in them. That's what I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the emotion that, that brings the point home and that they remember. They remember because of the emotion. That's what really gives you the lasting memory, the emotional impact. And if I could jump in there to Tim, sure. I think to Judy's uh, poem, I mean, I wanted to say this. I thought what was struck me about Judy's poem wasn't just that it was a poem about emotions, but it was also a poem about what we will never know, what we can't really know, the impasses, right? It's like some things we know, right? Like people were brought for profit, right? That, that's a refrain that runs through so many of the poems we heard, that clear reduction of human beings to cargo and objects, right? But what I heard in Judy's poem, um, many things I heard, but one was this constant question, you know, what did they think, right? What did they feel, right? There, there's, as people being treated as objects and people, someone else later said, I think it was a later poem said people talked about uh, people who didn't keep journals, right? Didn't keep diaries, right? This idea of like, the, the history, the, the, hum, the humanity and subjectivity that was in a, in a sense of written history lost, right? And, and the poet's task of trying to conjure that kind of impossible, like what is literally impossible to kind of bring it back, right? Or force us to reckon with what has been lost, right? And, and so, I mean, I, I, going through jo, Ju, Judy's point, it wasn't only like an expression of what, I mean, obviously we're feeling things hearing it, but it's almost about that that barrier to really ever, ever fully hearing, right? The vo some of the voices of people who were treated in this way. So anyway, that was just one point I thought too. It's also about like, we can think about the power of words to express emotions, but we can also think about the poetry is dramatizing the limits of words, which is one thing I felt listening to yours, even the style, Judy, the fragmentation of the phrases, right? Like party, kids, smiling. Like it was like, it's almost as if like, the fragments of history come down to us through your poem. And it's like up to us to try to like put them back together again in some way. You know, that's one of the things I heard listening to you. Um, but you know, Demetrius, uh, everybody see, else heard other things, but. Yeah. Demetrius, I see you're not in your head. You wanna, you wanna chime in, un, 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 unmute and chime in? I see you're not in your head, the Joe yeah. and Judy. Yeah, no, I'm uh, really enjoying uh, this conversation. Um, I don't know really kind of <laughs> where to start, um, given, given the conversation, but I guess to this point of, um, what does it mean to be an artist in this moment? And what is the, the capacity, um, of the artist to, to impact, um, the, this current moment? Um, I like to think of myself in a cult, as a cultural worker in the, in that regard, right? Um, not just a poet, but as a cultural worker, uh, an artist who seeks to situate and position my work, my cultural production in movement, in activist spaces to better um, enhance uh, the understanding of the moment, to galvanize people, to energize them in a particular type of way. Um, Lucille Clifton, the poet I really love, uh, has, a, uh, has a phrase where she says, I come to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And I really love that. And I try to think about that in my work. What does it mean to comfort the afflicted, right? To reinforce not only their struggles, but how do we 
engage the, the oppressed, the exploited in a way that can energize them to transform their condition so they're no longer afflicted. And that's a, and that's a direct relationship with the folks that are comfortable. Their comfort is built on the backs of the affliction, right, uh, of the masses of people. So that really concise relationship that Lucille Clifton draws out between those in power and the powerless, those who get to be comfortable based on the affliction of the many, right? And then having a poet that seeks to drive right into the middle of that relationship and upset it uh, is, is really what I try to do often um, with my work. Um, another poet that I love, Audre Lorde, um, in her essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury, which I think we'll demonstrate in here tonight, um, she says that poetry lays the foundation for a future of change, a bridge across our fears of what has never been before. And I really like that because what, what Audre Lorde is challenging us to do is think about what are the possibilities, right? What, what can we envision? And that's really important. Like rebellions are built on hope, but they're built on, on a vision. We have to be able to kind of think outside of what currently is. And poetry gives us a way to, to start to carve out what those ideas, what those visions are, and then hopefully can inspire folks to try to push forward um, towards those things. Yeah, well, we know that racism is at the heart of the, the indifference and the cruelty that the slave owners inflicted and that was, was inflicted in Minneapolis, right, on George Floyd. It's, it's the sense that one, we're special and you're inferior in some way and you don't have the rights, you don't ha have the rights. And so I wonder how much can poetry open the eyes of white people who maybe don't quite see us all as being equal, as having equal humanity. Can we open those eyes like what Judy was saying? What were they thinking? Well, obviously they weren't thinking very compassionately, right? They weren't thinking very, they didn't have much empathy or love or understanding. So how can we open their eyes? Uh, maybe Mark, you want to you want to give a, you have a, a thought about that, Mark Polite? Got to unmute. All right. All right. So what I would say to that, Tim, is I think one of the things we can talk about here is poetry is a way of kind of embracing the commonality of the human human experience. And, you know, whether the, you know, black poet, white poet, you're all talking about your experience, but specifically when, when it comes to uh, really talking about humanity and really understanding what it is. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that like even in 2020, we have to frame the conversation as, as as there being a bridge that's necessary to make in terms of black people having to, to express their humanity in the in the with a poetic license, but it just kind of show, goes to show you how far we haven't come. But but to to kind of to answer your question, um, I, I would just say it's about focus on the commonality of the of the human experience and really, you know, getting into the ways in which people things you don't have to think about. You know, there's there's a saying that. If you don't have to think about it uh, on a regular basis or a daily basis, that it's, it's a form of privilege. If you don't have to think about the ways in which uh, black people are followed around by the police and, and suspicious, that's something that is, doesn't enter your mind frame. You, you can't relate to it. 
And, you know, that's kind of what I, what I got into with my piece about, you know, about being black in America and the differences, the, the differences of the lived experience of us and just kind of put it, keep putting it out there. Like poets in the past, Langston Hughes, people like that, continue to put it out there and just say that, look, you know, we, are, we, you, we, you need to recognize humanity just like everybody else. And if you don't recognize uh, our humanity, then there are going to be social consequences for that. And that's why, you know, you have these protests because people have had it. Um, people have had it uh, being considered just someone you can just wipe out, try to exterminate the face of the earth. Uh, you know, in, in combination with the, the, the virus happening, it's almost all these things that's happening in convergence is kind of like saying, well, you know, some of y'all are not dying fast enough, so we still killing you. So I, I think that's what we're facing now. The, the pushback and the backlash comes from that. So, so that's that's kind of where where I want to leave it. You know, on that question. Oh, thank you, Lori. Thank you. Yeah, Lorraine, I'm sorry I skipped you. You 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 have a you want to unmute and do you have a comment uh, about what we were talking about so far about opening people's eyes to the injustice, to the racism, and and. and just how you think about your work in relationship to okay. these. Uh, can everyone hear me? I'm yes. Dead. You can? Yes. Yes. Okay, okay. I, I, okay, because I'm looking at all of these signs and they're coming on mute, on mute. And so it's a little confusing. Well, what I do, okay, first of all, I don't have any uh, set process, um, process, but what I do have, I use my voice. I use my voice to speak about my experiences and what I see happening in the world. Also, what's very um, close to me is my ancestors speak to me. I'm very connected spiritually with my ancestors, their experiences. I feel as though that I speak for them. They live through me. They live through me and they teach me. So what, it is, what I do, I write. And the only times that I really write, I write when, they, when I have something to say. And often it's not about me having something to say. It's about my ancestors having something to say. So I, I, that if there is such a thing as a process, that's what I do. I write when I have need to write, when there are words coming to me, when there are messages coming to me, when there are things coming to me, and often it just takes off from there. And what I have wanted to um, say, when it comes to white folk, it seems to me that often what happens, what often what happens, the onus is put on black people to teach white people about racism, entitlement, and privilege. We've been in this country for over 400 years. People know, people are not blind, okay? People know what lynch means. People know, they've seen lynchings, they've seen murders, they've seen, people, they've seen uh, police brutality, but people have a tendency to turn their heads. You know, people are not ignorant and they're not blind as I stated. They know what's happening. It is what 
what I would say to allies and what we need as far as white people is concerned, we need you to disrupt yourselves, disrupt your families, disrupt your friends, disrupt your communities, and tell them to get their fuck your knees off our necks and to stop killing black people. It's as simple as that. It's not complicated. When you read and you watch on your TV all of these continuous murders of black parents' children, you know what's going on. You're a parent. Imagine your child being murdered based on the color of their skin. So I don't fall into that category with all of that, oh, you know, we need to teach them because they don't understand. My God, I've lived a long time. I've seen many different movements. And my God, there are elders around who are like me. You don't even have to be an elder. You're not blind. You're not blind. What you have to purpose you, what's important, you have to care. You have to care enough. But people are fine with their privilege, fine with their entitlement, and as long as it doesn't affect them in any way and they're not made to feel uncomfortable, many people, many people are okay. And then you have those allies who are out there and who are um, raising voice and protesting as well. But those are allies. But the movement, the narrative, the overall narrative belongs to black people. And what I mean by that, we have to define and determine what our liberation and what freedom means to us. We cannot allow, we can no longer allow, and it's happened too many times, too many moments, we cannot allow our message the movement to be diluted, the message to be diluted with thoughts and policies that do not lead to our true equality and freedom and our liberation. We need to be, we need to, it's very important. We just need to remain in charge of our narrative and say, okay, Alash, you have, a, you have a position and your position, your job is to go into your, as I stated before, to go into your homes, your communities, and have these discussions with your kinfolk, your friends, because this is where the racism is. We, it, is not, it is not our job to go into white communities and to have these conversations about racism and um, how can we overcome, overcome what's going on. No, no, no. We've been there. We've done that. Where your bodies are really needed. I always said all of these with all the mothers, the black mothers who are mourning the death of their children, 
where are, I always say, where are the white mothers? Why I want to see, I want to see millions of white mothers and fathers No, saying no, enough is enough. I want them to go in front of those police stations, go to Washington, go wherever it is, everywhere, and to state we demand an end to police brutality. We demand an end to this supremacy. Our children and our great-great-grandchildren have to live in a world and we do not want this for them. I think we have to start, I think it comes to, we're not, that's why we haven't had these real discussions on race because everyone is trying to be political correct. Everyone is trying to be polite and it's not working. I don't personally, I don't have time to concern myself with the comfort of white folks or anybody. I don't have time for that. Why? Because I am a black woman living in this world. And at any moment, I can open up my door, go outside, and some crazed cop can kill me. Or some crazed cop can knock down my door and kill without impunity. And that's what's happening. I want people to get out there and do the work. I'm I'm not interested in uh, these little get-togethers socializing my death. I, I'm not interested in that. I have no time for that. Get out. Get in your communities and talk. You know if your relatives are calling someone a nigger, a bastard, oh, he got what he deserved. You know that, but you have to have the courage, the courage to say no. Uh-uh, this stops. And whites who are supposedly woke and conscious, educate your, educate your family, your friends, your colleagues, your community. I speak with this because I'm very, very passionate. Why? Because these murders just happen. And George Floyd's murder, it shook me to my core like all the others did. Shook me to my core. And to look in that cop's face, he did it because he knew he could. And he didn't care. He really didn't care. And he did no, it's not that he didn't care. Pardon my 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 language, darling. He didn't give a shit. Because this country and this administration have given these people permission to go hunting. Yeah. Given the permission. It's always been here and it's always been and it has always happened, the murders. It's just that for the I, I, I don't whatever is in that chair in Washington, I, I can't I don't even speak the name that's given too much dignity yeah. is boarded I, all too light. Oh, and I wanted, oh, Muhammad, I wanted to um, just say one thing, my darling. I just wanted to say, um, and excuse me from, um, for saying that, dear. But I just wanted to say, 
um, the mythology of black on black crime, that argument is always thrown in to distract. No one says white on white crime, Asian on Asian crime, and how it's a mythology. What you have to look at that most communities are segregated. So if you are in a community of black people and you're a criminal, who are the people that you're going to practice your trade on? If you are an Asian criminal and you're living in an Asian, majority Asian community, you're going to practice your, you're going to practice your profession on people who are available. So that, that black on black thing, they always throw that out as simply a distraction and to justify the murders. Thank you, Lorraine. We, we want to give some other poets a chance. Okay, I, okay, I said what I had to say, and I'm sorry for taking no, so much. Right. Thank you. Annette Turner, I'd like to hear your thoughts. And we have Can I actually just respond to one thing? I mean, just sure. adding on to uh, Lorraine's point. I mean, Lorraine, thank you for sharing all of that. And, um, and even just hearing your voice without a face here, I think it was quite powerful. Uh, and uh, I just want to say, like, you know, the, the crime that exists or the violence that exists within, you know, a ghetto-wise communities, people that have been, you know, in, in urban areas that have been deindustrialized, where, where unemployment and, 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 you know, has, has gone through the roof as capitalists abandon the very people that built their fortunes. Like, the violence that accrues in the wake of capitalist abandonment, you know, I think is also to be the violence that, that, that might be there is actually to be laid at the, at, the, at the foot of the system as well. I mean, I think this idea that, like, you know, right, this idea that black on black crime is, like, black people's fault is, pardon my French, you know, bullshit as well, right? It's like, oh, did black people just decide, we you know, we want to live in super hyper, hyper segregated parts of the ghetto next to the, next to the, the factory where, the, where the, uh, the, the pollution's being fumed, right? And we want to live next to the railroad. Now, that's like the product itself, right, of like white supremacy and, and all these laws that, that limited where people can live, right, and limited the, their access to jobs. And so, frankly, I mean, Mohammed, if you're thinking of, you know, ways of, responding to the black on black crime thing too. It's also like, well, you know what, the escalated violence that might, you know, it, you know, might be involved in some communities is also to be laid at the foot of a system that is not given people- Everything is laid at the foot of the system. That's right. exactly what I am saying. It's all systemic. It's all laid at the foot of a corrupt, unjust, yeah. inequitable system. Absolutely. Yeah. No. So anyway, that's where it results from. That's yeah. where it results from. Great. Thank, we, thanks. I mean, just to jump in there, I'll let you, I'll let you take it back, Tim. Take, take it over to Raymond. Yes. Raymond, I'd like to hear your thoughts. And we have a request uh, for you to read about his capitalism baby, if you have that. If you, if you um, but let's hear your thoughts first. Yeah, yes. Well, okay. The first thing um, I'd like to say is that I'm heartened, heartened by the young people who've come out in the streets across the country, Seattle, Oakland, LA, New York City, uh, uh, Tennessee, uh, on and on and on. You, you get the drift. And um, because they, they represent the world that 
is being born before our very eyes. Uh, they were of every ethnicity, nationality. Um, you had 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds leading demonstrations out here. Um, just absolutely amazing. And a, a lot of them were women, young women. That was, it's, you know, it's a predominance of young women in the forefront. So that should give all of us uh, joy in terms of looking at the future. Secondly, I'd like to say that uh, as the Brother Noble said, I, I too consider myself a cultural worker. I, I've worked in warehousing, driven forklifts and unloaded 18 wheelers and done janitorial work. So I'm working class clearly and so I have a class outlook. And as a cultural worker, I think uh, the task of cultural workers at this moment in history and time is if one is a, a painter, a dancer, theater, uh, a, a playwright, poet, uh, instrumentalist, I think first and foremost is, uh, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to dig deep and hone our crafts and make them, you know, because when people are in countries where revolutions are taking place, and it's my hunch that that's what we're witnessing the early stages of, I, don't, I wouldn't put my money on it. But in any case, um, you know, cultural workers have a significant role to play in all those struggles, but it's incumbent that you see that I, you know, I'm speaking for myself, I'm putting an I statement, sharpen my axe, you know, uh, hone my craft, and be able to be on the front lines in the cultural arena, because there's class struggle going on, make no mistake about it and it's happening in a number of arenas it's happening in the on the economic front with the bailouts to the uh, banksters and multi-billionaires it's happening on the streets with uh, the tear gas and weaponry and it's happening in on the cultural front as well there's different trends, different tendencies. You know, there's the academics who think that poetry is for a select few, theaters for a select few, music is for a select few. But there are those of us who are culture workers, we differ, we think that the uh, millions and tens of millions who are out in the streets around the world need reinforcement and that's what the culture can do and so i'm going to try and wrap up by i just wanted to address something about yes at currently with the murder of breonna taylor uh, in louisville uh, uh, mr jo mr george floyd in uh, minneapolis and on and on and on. There's a whole litany, and I'm very well versed in who they are. 
At the same time, it's incumbent on African-Americans to have a wide vision. Um, these are onesies, you know, when the uh, president before, you know, people could talk about 45. Well, there was four, you know, I think of it was 45 automatic. And then the other one was 44 Magnum. And, you know, drone strikes, killing people in Yemen, killing people, uh, you know, green lighting the murder of uh, hundreds of Palestinians, you know, daily, on the daily, like it's um, regularized, routinized, you know. And so we have to be uh, internationalists. We have to unite with the people that are struggling in Venezuela, Cuba, uh, uh, Syria, uh, Iran, Iraq, all the places where the U.S. imperialists are entrenched. And, and you know, it, 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 it bothers me. You know, I can scream when, you know, a, a lot, uh, during eight, for eight years, a man, I call him the drone ranger, he went into a room and said, who, I'm gonna kill this person every Tuesday. I call it Tuesday heartbreak. Some family was gonna get a drone strike somewhere around the world. And because he was African-American, a lot of people who were African-Americans were cool with that. You know, it was like, oh yeah, they were silent. But now when the so-called 45 or boss tweet, boss tweet, as I call it, uh, is doing it, then people get, you know, uh, ants in their pants. It, it can't be that way. You have to be consistent in, in opposing this uh, U.S. imperialist beast that we happen to be in the belly of. Okay, and I'll leave it at that. Yeah. If, yeah, Tim, can I jump in on that to, to Raymond? I mean, Raymond, I mean, two things you said there, I mean, uh, that really resonated and and reminded me back of the poem that you did read is also like, what can poetry do? One thing it can do, and I think your poetry does so well uh, from what I've heard, and I want to read more, is it to de what, you know, what, uh, well, what Brecht used to call in German, defamiliarize, right? The great communist poet, German, yeah. right? Like taking something or estrange. What, what seems like we live in a world where there's all endless numbers of barbarities that have been, as you say, routinized, right? Like, oh, another drone strike. Oh, another Afghani family, had, you know, killed at a wedding. It, it, you know, maybe it's a little blurb that big in the newspaper, right? And, uh, and the idea that poetry can take things that have been made to seem normal and background, you know, almost like, you know, white noise even or whatever, right? And bring them into the foreground and also get, give us a, an angle to see it. Like I think you did with your po poem, like with this whole notion of what do we need, right? The idea of like, of course, we don't need people being right maced and choked, and well, but the, but maybe a system does, right? And and the way that you you kind of help us to see even the headlines we may have heard, but to see it in a new way that now makes it seem like more intolerable than it did already, right? More absurd, more just like in in, a, in hopefully in a hundred years or four hundred years they'll look back and be like, what the fuck were they thinking? How could they allow this to go on for so long? the same way we might look back at certain barbaric practices of a long time ago and be like, wow, what were they thinking? So I just, that, I, that, that power of poetry 
to estrange, right? Take something that's been rendered normal and get us to see how fucked up it is, right? Um, in, in a way, and then, but I think the other challenge is like some people talk about writing poetry out of experience, but as you point out, and I think Demetrius did this with his poem too, a poet that wants to speak to imperialism, that wants to speak to internationalism and not only what's happening in the, you know, in our own backyard, has a challenge too, right? Like how do you conjure vividly for people what the society has rendered and tried to fragment and, and kind of separate us from so much, geographically, socially, culturally, right? Kind of bracket things off so that if they appear at all, it's only as a statistic. You know, so I know I just, I mean, that's not really a question, but just like a problem, I think, you know, right? How do we make the international crimes of this system as vivid as George Floyd's strangulation, which and, and the power that that captured for people, right? And I'm not saying that like horror is the way to go, like as if the, the, the more horrific images, the better, no. But just like, it seems like a challenge for poets too. I'm curious how people, you know, Demetrius, I know you, you deal with, you're very insistent on the need to have an internationalist perspective on black life and on life in general, right? Like not just a nationalist one. I don't know, you know, if, if, if you would want to speak to that, but, you know, or anyone else, but how do we, how do poets, how can people give voice to things that have been rendered so distant? Well, we Even the so-called uh, woke folks in this country often don't think about or don't talk as much about what's happening abroad. We haven't had a chance to hear from Eartha again. So, Eartha, yeah. do you have any uh, thoughts or comments on what uh, uh, Raymond and Joe was, was talking about? Or would you like to give any response to any of the poems that you heard? Oh, you got to unmute, Eartha. You. Sorry, hi. Um, as far as um, international issues, um, we have enough issues at home to focus on. <laughs> There's enough going on out in the streets for us to worry about and take care of first. It's, you know, it's one of those situations where, you know, on the weekend you wake up and you clean your own home, you don't clean your neighbor's home. So that being the case, as far as international affairs, um, those who are in government and who are in position to deal with those issues, fine. But the everyday person, the everyday black person, um, really, we just want to wake up in the morning, take care of our families, love ourselves, embrace our lives, do what we have to do to keep going without the interference of those who are afraid of us just because we're black. You know, we have a right to live our lives and do what we're called to do every single day. And someone else shouldn't interrupt my existence. It shouldn't interrupt anyone in our family's existence. You know, but every single day there is a, a police sketch that looks like every man in my family. You know, so it's, it's something as simple as looking like a police sketch puts everybody in danger. Whereas um, that's something that other races don't really have to concern themselves with. You know, just waking up, oh, you look like a suspect. Or the criminalization of, um, of young black youth, uh, you know, in, in the papers, in the media, the language that's used. Um, you know, we're guilty until proven innocent. So, you know, as a writer and as a poet, you know, my concern is shining a light on the narrative so that you can see 
where the dark spots are, where, where the injustices are. You know, the injustices in the culture, the injustices in how we are described, the injustices in how we're perceived. Um, because we, we have a right to be who we are without wearing the burden of someone else's perception. You know, we're all individuals, um, very sweet souls just trying to do what we're trying to do. You know, um, and it, 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 it's sad. It's sad to know that you can leave your house or your child can leave the house and be in danger having done nothing wrong, having followed every rule, having done the right thing and been respectful and still be at risk. You know, there's, um, there was that, that lie we believed for many years that if we did the right thing, that would protect us. But when doing the right thing doesn't protect you, what's left, you know? So um, that all being the case, it's, it's, um, it's sad and it's scary. And um, yeah, you know, like I said, th this is something that we here at home need to focus on, you know, because that's our immediate danger. You know, that's our immediate yeah, I'm going to jump in. Um, I don't, I don't want to be bogarting. <laughs> I don't want that appearance, you know, particularly when there are women and, you know, because men tend to speak a lot. But in this case, I, I really feel I must say something because I'm out here in Oakland, California. The longshore workers, local 10 of the ILWU, when South African workers were being oppressed under the apartheid regime, refused to unload a ship called the Ned Lloyd Kimberly. They put their jobs on the line, their families on the line, their homes on the line to support the struggles of the South African people. When in 68, when the African-Americans came out in 125 cities after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis. The Chinese people issued a statement in support of the African-American people's struggle, talking about the system of capitalism arose and throve with the enslavement of the African people. And the Vietnamese people likewise issued statements. So there's, and, and, and there has been solidarity throughout the years between the African-American people and the Palestinians. So our struggle is part and parcel of the struggles of the people of the world and vice versa. These people are out in the streets in France, they're out in the streets in the UK, they're out in the streets in South America, all around the world. So we must, you know, we have to fight here, but we can walk and chew gum. We can fight domestically and we can have solidarity with people struggling aboard. That's the way it's been. That's the way Paul Robeson, the great Paul Robeson, that's what he represented. Ossie Davis, Ruby D, all, all of our great uh, cultural workers and artists, Mary Baraka, Likewise, it was an international. So we can do both. 
Um, well, to interject, uh, Raymond, when I was in college, I knew what companies to um, not to support because they invested in South Africa, but that was when I was in college. Now it's one battle at a time for me, maybe because I have tunnel vision, but right now, this whole entire month, I didn't think about any other country unless I looked at the screen and saw them in protest for George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. I forgot about every other issue, so call it my tunnel vision, but right now, this is the matter that's on the plate, at least for me. You know, until this is all settled and it's all squared away and things good, then I can focus on the next the next big issue. But right now, this is the one that's most pressing. Well, I think that um, it, it's very encouraging that we've had protests uh, about the murder of George Floyd in England, uh, in China, in Sweden, in Australia, in New Zealand. I mean, in South America, there were, there were huge rallies against American racism. And so, you know, as Raymond was, was pointing out, there is you know, racism and oppression of, of, of people is something that goes on all around the world. And I think it's encouraging that we're seeing so much international solidarity for us for a change. You know, yeah. I think that's, uh, I think that's an, an encouraging and you, thing. And you said a key word. Can anyone hear me? Yes. 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 Okay, you said a key word, and that is we have, I have lived long enough, as I stated, to see and to participate in various movements, and Black people have always been there. Black people have always empathized and have always put our bodies on the front line for others because we relate to the oppression of others, and because we are having this conversation and because it may have been uh, focused on what's happened immediately here in this country, a number of us are meeting for the first time or maybe hearing in a conversation or in a discussion with each other for the first time. So you can't speak from a point, you don't know anyone's history or history. You don't know where our bodies have been. You don't know where we have placed our bodies and where we have fought, where we have fought. You don't know whether or not, we can't speak, make generalizations and assumptions just because we're having a discussion. You don't know what our experiences have been. You don't know whether we're Pan-African is, international you don't know any of that what we're doing we're having a conversation and i understand what the i understand what's being said but black people have always and we still and this and why um the protests all of the protests around the world globally okay globally are resonating with us now because this is something that we have not experienced. In this is new. Where globally, globally, everyone is protesting the brutality and the murders of black people. So it's about time, as far as I'm concerned, because we have been in the fight. And I, as I stated, I've lived long enough, so I've seen a lot. So 
There will be no preacher to the choir because I've been, I've had the guns on me. I've been beat. I've, I've gone through it. I've been through it with thousands and millions of other people. So this is, I mean, so I understand and I'm, I understand I cannot fight. I cannot fight for someone. I cannot fight for someone if I'm dead. If I'm dead or, or beat up and bruised, if I'm being brutalized, no one, we, we have to speak about those things. We are mothers, we are aunts, we are uncles, we are family who are worrying about survival. I am a woman, I'm worrying about the men in my family. I'm worrying about male colleagues, friends, community members. I'm concerned about all of them. I'm constantly having that talk. I love you, keep safe. I'm constantly, I've been having that all my life. All my life I've been having those conversations and I'm still having those conversations. So what we have to do, what's happening with us too, we are in a state of trauma as well. We've been, we've been experiencing trauma since our ancestors were enslaved. And it's never stopped. It's just been piled on and on and on and on. So we're, having, we're dealing with mental health. We're dealing with mental health. By profession, I am a mental health counselor, and I'm a thanatologist, one who specializes in grief and bereavement. So this is a time where, this is a time where I'm doing a lot of counseling. I'm doing a lot of talking. I'm doing a lot of listening. And these are my tools, as well as the writing and the speaking. But I'm about, I'm thinking about life. I'm thinking about not only surviving COVID-19, I'm thinking about surviving these crazed, maniac, savage beasts in uniform, and I'm going to call them what they are, not all. But I'm a call what I'm a call those that are committing these murders and what I see and those who are complicit what they are. I am not going to dignify them by giving them human status. So we're trying to survive. And if I'm being passionate about it, so be it. I am unapologetic because my life is at stake and those that I love their lives are at stake. So every time, every time I hear of a death, I, a, a part of me, dies as well. A part of me dies as well. So we know all about, yes, we know about the politics, my darling. We know about that. We woke, we're aware, we read, we know. We know what's been, we know political, what's been happening globally. We know all of that. But right now we're saying, 
I have to focus on home. I have to focus on just staying alive. I have to make certain that my family is alive. I have to make certain that everybody is in their place and I can call and hear their voice. That's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. And so with all the protests with the people globally, yes, our lives, we need you. We need each other. But this, I have to say, with all of that said, it's about time because our bodies have always been on the line for everyone, everyone. When this country didn't want the Vietnamese, we stood with them. We stood with them. We protest. We stood with them. Muhammad Ali, mm, sure. what was his famous words? Oh, yeah. No Vietnamese <laughs> ever caught me, nigga. <laughs> okay, right. so I go back. Come on now. 2021, 20, I turned 70, okay? Mm. So I have seen a lot. Thank you, Lorraine. Thank you. Uh, it's we're we're way over our normal uh, hour of allotment, but that's you know that's okay. We're having a uh, a powerful conversation. I'd, I'd like to know if any other any more poets have any other uh, co closing comments or co what? comments before we uh, before we uh, move on. Uh, yes, Tim. I just wanted to say you know a lot of times the media does not show what's going on in the other world and the other. In, in the world other than the United States. And what I notice is that if you turn on every channel, they just replay the same, it's almost like they're buying stories from each right. other. And you just see the same stories over mm -hmm. and over again. When I was in Senegal um, a, a couple of years ago, I was watching the, t the television in my hotel room and there was, there was um, news from, you know, just about every country in the world, Spain, um, China, uh, Germany, Sweden, England, you, you saw it all, you know, and I think the problem with American uh, media is that all the stations play the same thing. And we never get to, we never really get a good perspective of what's going on in the world unless we go out and, and find the media that we like and read about it. But that is an issue too that needs to be dealt with. I, I completely agree. And I think, um, so going back to the international um, kind of perspective of, of protest, right? Even in the in 57, 58, when African countries have been liberated, you have people, you have African-American musicians, you have, I think MLK even went to um, Ghana to stand with the people there. And actually even recently now, I was in France not long ago, um, studying abroad and um, the mm -hmm. black, actors there protest against uh, uh, the film, the French film industry, because a lot of the time black people that were represented in those films were either serves or, you know, not in the main roles. And I think the, that movement was inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement that started a couple of years before that. So a lot of the time, actually, black culture is influencing minorities all over the country, I mean, all over the world. And sometimes we're not even aware of that. And I think a lot of it has to be with the fact that our media is very insular. It only talks about us because we are the big thing after all in the, in the world. Um, so just because we're not seeing it doesn't mean it's not happening. Mm -hmm. And and just because of that too, we shouldn't disregard those people because I think it's with their solidarity that we can 
combat uh, this immorality that has come about through capitalism as well as um, other institutions that are oppressing people like African-Americans here, but also globally. And let me just give a plug for the movie Cook Off, uh, a cooking competition in Zimbabwe. It's a wonderful little movie. Get a chance to check it out. Joe, you have a, a, a something, a comment, another comment? I mean, I know I wanted to make one comment or two. I mean, I, we have a very interesting discussion here about like, on the one hand, the pressing need to engage with what is immediate, the immediate injustice that's in one's own backyard, right? The, the need to take care of what's happening in the street here before or to the, you know, there's so much energy that needs to go into that right now just to stay alive, just to protect, right? That it's hard to even think about having the space to like consciously talk about, you know, intervening in US imperialism in Yemen, right? So, which is, I think a real, very real tension. We all, I mean, people have scarce energy, resources, emotional, just time, people work in jobs and then trying to find some time to write and take care of kids and everything else. But it's, I think, I mean, one, the point I would want to make would be that things don't necessarily have to be consciously related to be related. Like, I mean, I think one thing that's hopeful about this moment too, you know, I come from a Marxist tradition, but I know there's, you know, where there's a way of thinking about how things are connected in a deep way, right? But there's also now a tradition which is related, but different to the Marxist tradition, but overlaps about talking about intersectionality, right? And really the, the emphasis on thinking, seeing the connections between different struggles doesn't mean they're always consciously connected, but this, the, the connections are there. And I think also one thing about poetry is, right, it's, when it's at its most powerful, it's not necessarily listing everything, every checking off every struggle in the world, but by its very crystallization of a particular right image and situation, it resonates profoundly. It, it strikes that web of life, that web of the system, that web of humanity, and you feel the 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 vibration of it even in unexpected quarters, right? So the people in Minnesota and Minneapolis that took to the streets for George Floyd probably weren't thinking, oh, I'm going to try to start an anti-racist movement in Paris. <laughs> right. But they, but they helped spark that. They helped, they helped strike that chord nonetheless. Right. And I think that's one of the paradoxes of capitalism and imperialism and, and which to me is always, you know, racism built into that is always like the way that it, it makes us can make us feel more disconnected and isolated or it wants to, right? We're all just individuals. We're all just, you know, in contracts, you know, in separate little compartments, but actually we're more connected than ever. You know, you know whether the essential workers we depend on to get through our day, et cetera, which is an international group itself. So it's like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to preach this. I just talk passionately, which passion is definitely welcome on this show, Lorraine, as you pointed out, but I think it's just, very powerful to think about the, how poetry can unearth and raise to the surface connections that are there, you know, and not necessarily explicitly. It might be for the reader, right? And the listener to, to draw out the connection. But, but I think listening to all of you today, you may not have known how connected your works would be, but I heard a tremendous amount of connections between one another, but also to many other struggles in the world. And the, the final point I'll make is just that as a scholar of mid 20th century, like black writing and literature and the American left, it's like, there's such a history of African-American struggle in particular and cultural workers having incredibly powerful global, global effects. I mean, the, the brother Paul Robeson was mentioned, the great Paul Robeson, but you know, he's also exemplary because right, he, for those who don't know, and probably most people on this call know, but the government worked their ass off to precisely to cut those international ties to the point denying him a passport. So he had to sing and perform to his, 
Canadian audience across a river, right? Right. So I mean, many others also. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, you know, and you know, the Lorraine Hansberry. I'm thinking of like, really, there's been a profound internationalism to African American radical and artistic tradition that mainstream culture and dominant culture has tried to cut, at least in the public consciousness. But it never has been able to, and it really can't because the African American struggle, at least as I understand it, is so deeply bound up with so many of these other international struggles. And there's Indeed. there's. There's, there's a question here. Well, I think also for the history, people have to understand that, you know, um, during the, the slave trade, you know, Africans went all over the world. They were traded all over the world because of there was a, a global economy for the slave yeah. trade. And we just got off at different, different, we were just placed in different, you know, ports. Mm -hmm. But we, we have similar cultures. We have similar experiences. We are not really completely separate, you know. Yeah, um, yeah that, that needs to be taught in the school. There needs to be more history about um, mm -hmm. the slave trade and how uh, imperialism spread around the world. It wasn't just one place; it was around the world. So I think a lot of people don't e don't know that. I mean, I don't want to even talk about you know who the beast, but um, <laughs> he doesn't even know about you know the the Confederate Army and the the Confederacy in this country. So history is a big part of, you know, teaching our children exactly what happened during not just the slave trade, but the culture before the slave trade. You know, there was African royalty. You know, there, there were diamonds and riches and minerals and, you know, all, you name it. It was in Africa and that's not even discussed in, at all in school. You know, so they have to understand that there was, there were people who were in royalty before the slave trade began. And it didn't just start with a ship. Raymond? I was, I was wondering, uh, what, what is our time like? Because um, sometimes I think uh, like Breck, someone mentioned Breck and Breck said sometimes things are uh, maybe not clear because they're excessively discussed. Uh, as opposed to not discussed enough. And sometimes uh, art can do that. I have a piece that if there was time, I'd like to share. If not, you know, I understand. Maybe we could go out with a couple of poems. I know Demetrius has yeah. a piece that's ready as well. Uh, yeah. And I know there's been a request for Raymond already from the chat, chat box. Uh, Tim, is it okay with you? We'll yeah, sure. go Raymond, up what, a couple what, poems. Yeah, Ray, why don't you go with another poem? And we'll say and goodbye we'll and talk Demetrius. about next week. When I hope yeah. some of you will join us next week as well as we continue this. Would we like to, well, Raymond, you want to take it away and then, and then Dee? Yes, if I could. It's just a piece. Is, um, it is solidarity. Uh, Seven-year-olds dying in Third Reich detention. Poppy, are we there? Are we almost there? Wide-eyed incantation of a child, three feet plus, 60 pounds, exodus, leaving the lone land six days before birthday seven. Poppy, are we there? Are we almost there? Beaming birthday celebrant on the bus munching an uncrushed pink frosted cookie from Poppy's beat up 
back, back. Poppy, are we there? Are we almost there? Her small, soft hands celebrating heroics of an unshaven face chasing dreams. Dreams of pine tree scents and small gifts, compliments of the magic of his hands. Dreams of the doll her mother promised before dying suddenly. Dreams of asylum from violence, fleeing extractive capitalism's suction tube tentacles. Poppy also had dreams of Jaybird, as he called her, teaching school and university with compassion and skill, like she instructed stick dolls he crafted from fallen branches. Poppy, are we there? Are we almost there? Springing up and down on her invisible trampoline, Poppy's promises of a Christmas tree and celebration in California racing through her amazed and amazing mind. Poppy was proud. His back burned and ached. He clenched his teeth when she fell asleep. His stomach growled, rattling sunken sides. He went without eating so her belly would be full. He took tiny swigs of water so she'd have enough. Football fans who love players that play through pain, basketball fans who love players that create their own shots, that's chasing dreams thousands of miles through government, gang-infested swamps, bad back, seven-year-old in tow, show up in your thicket of statistics and fantasy. Poppy, are we there? Are we almost there? To her, the bumpy ride, jarring dreams, juggling her belly up and down was an adventure. And Poppy had prepared her for it with bedtime stories where everyone lived happily ever after. Arriving at a border swarming with uniformed thugs, three-fifths human, igloos pumping raw sewage through veins whistling Dixie, prying Poppy and Jaybird apart, her forehead a 105-degree radiator, body spasming, eyes rolling round in their sockets, tummy evicting the food. Poppy fed her. Terrorist tricks to breach the border, enter the U.S., as were her delirious, distorted, slow-motion last words. Poppy, are we there? Are we almost there? Wow. Thank you, Raymond. Oof. All right. Demetrius, you get the closing, you get the closing piece. And and stay around for the music. We got a we've got great theme music for our show. Yeah. Thank you. Um Raymond, that piece was amazing. As was, as was the first as well. That was amazing. Um, 
This last piece um, that I'll share is entitled Where We Stand. Um, and before I get into the piece, just to say um, briefly, uh, as a response to the earlier conversation we had concerning um, internationalism and what Joe said, um, you know, seems to be a, a certain kind of tension between the immediate um, issue mm -hmm. we're facing at home versus an internationalist perspective. I would challenge us to think about those things um, not as an either or, but a both and, right? Um, the immediate attention that we can focus um, with tenacity, with clarity here at home in our own backyard, uh, as the earlier sister said, we've already seen how that can inspire folks abroad, right? So uh, there, there is a, certainly a certain way where um, our, our tenacious and focused efforts with clarity under the right uh, princi political principles can inspire folks all over um, the world. So I think it can be a both and as opposed to um, an either or. And as several people have said here already, you know, the black struggle has continued to be a muse of inspiration for uh, oppressed people globally. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll just say that. But um, this piece is entitled um, Where We Stand. They say they want to make America great again. We say let's make America shake again. As we bang on the system with force held in our interconnected fates again until they resurrect McCarthyism to red bait again. Let them curse us as filthy socialists till the day it ends. And let us agree, as we know it's the only way we win. With bated breath, let the bosses inhale the wind from collective sigh and shout of an alienated kin, determined to bring the ruling class to its bloody end, crushing capitalism so it can never come again. A class in itself, for itself, is where we stand. Whether you're black, white, straight, gay, queer, or trans, a movement not confined by the borders of any land, so all refugees are welcome here to build and plan. We yell, fuck your wall and deportation programs. We raise revolutionary fists alongside immigrant working hands, which means, Obama, you don't rise above this critique. We haven't forgotten that you are deporter in chief. Trump only hopes to do what you already achieved. And we recall how you play states' rights with police, maintaining bureaucratic distance from black rage and grief. You offer feudal body camera remedies while sharing empty sympathies, saving your real energy to curb black working class militancy. And we have not forgot the drone showers your imperialist power unleash. Behind your charming smile lie fangs of beasts where black dreams and bodies decay between your teeth. Eight years of you secured no relief as we endured the onslaughts of Wall Street. Your endorsements for Hillary fell dead at our feet. And Biden promises austerity minus the tweets. 
This is why we mobilize in the streets. People power comes to dismantle the state. Working class power comes to free the human race. We come to stop the tyranny of your oligarchies. We come to crush Democrat and Republican parties. We come to stop the transition from backward populism to fascism. We come to eradicate capitalism, replace it with egalitarian socialism. We believe in radical internationalism that overthrows the chokehold of nationalisms. We believe in the dictatorship of the proletariat. So Trump, be prepared for how relentless this resistance gets. Global rulers, be prepared for a mighty clash that promises the final coup of the working class. Lenin asked what is to be done. The answer lies on the tip of an Afghan woman's tongue. From under her hijab, she yells, workers of the world unite, organize. Heed her call till our revolution is realized. Let's make the whole world ours again. A class in itself, for itself, is where we stand. Thank you, Demetrius Noble, for that closing poem in what has now become almost a two-hour presentation and discussion. I'd like to thank you all for being here. Thank you all to all the poets. We will share your work on our website, our Facebook page. We will be back here again next week to continue this conversation. Though art may not be the central focus, these themes that your work has been raising surely will. Our focus will be on resistance in and outside the prisons around the issue of mass incarceration. We'll be co-hosting the next episode with the group It's Up To Us to End Mass Incarceration, a grassroots organization out of New York. Uh, and the week after that, we hope to have our episode focus on the ends of policing, getting some reports from Minneapolis and other cities where the dismantling of police departments is literally on the agenda. We hope that some of you will join us, uh, you know, back next Thursday, seven o'clock Eastern Standard Time. 